The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project, Season 2, As You Like It. This episode features Phoebe in Act 3, Scene 5. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Aaron Kelly. I'm here again with Dr. Erin Kelly, Associate Professor of English at the University of Victoria. Welcome, Erin. Hello, Karen. Lovely to have a chance to talk to you. And you as well. This is our this is our last episode for this season. And this episode, we're talking about Phoebe in Act 3, Scene 5. Um, so tell us a little bit about what Phoebe's up to here. Oh, I adore Phoebe. So Phoebe is uh, one of the characters who seems to live in this forest that's full of shepherds and sheep. She comes in and she's basically being being pursued or accompanied by Silvius. Uh, Silvius is a shepherd and he is in love with Phoebe and Phoebe is not in love with him. And so what we're getting in this speech is Phoebe clearly not for the first time trying to get Silvius to leave her alone. What's very interesting about this speech that she's directing to Silvius is that it is connected to all sorts of poetic traditions. And in that way, it is very much in keeping with a lot of the things that we see with lots of other characters and lots of scenes in As You Like It, a play that is just full of all kinds of ideas about poetry. This is not a real forest. This is a literature forest. And it in many ways, knows it's a literature forest, and the characters running around in it know it's a literature forest. I love that literature forest. <laughs> um, yeah, they even have a sort Books of... in Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging poems on trees. It's, yes, it's, it's, it's pretty explicit. <laughs> um, they even have really sort of um, poetic pastoral names, these characters. Absolutely. So Silvius is, you know, a, a Latin name basically means forest, wood, wood woodland, Silvis. Um, and Phoebe's name, uh, which is a, a Greek name, is bright. Uh, but Phoebe and Silvius are the kinds of names that you would see in classical pastoral poetry with the pastoral being this literary tradition where it is ostensibly about the lives of shepherds and shepherdesses. But in reality, pastoral is inevitably written by people attached with the court or with the city. And so it becomes an excuse to, or a means to idealize what the simple country life is like and how lovely it would be to be a shepherd and to lie around in the sunshine, tend your sheep and pick 
flowers and talk to pretty shepherdesses. As They're opposed not thinking to, about mucking out stalls. Right, right, exactly. As opposed to all this terrible complication of court and the city. And, um, and, and so it's a literary tradition. And as you said, it's not mucking out stalls. If you tried to use pastoral poetry as a guide to raising actual sheep, all of your sheep would die. And then there's another literary tradition getting pulled in here, too, by way of the fact that Silvius is in love with Phoebe and that Phoebe is not in love with him. And then based on what she says in this speech, it's very clear that with him in that situation, that that has pulled him into uh, what gets referred to as the Petrarchan tradition. And so if you'll indulge me, first of all, when I say Petrarch, um, even people who, who know Petrarch's poetry, I think it's important to unpack. Um, Petrarch was a poet who uh, lived in the 14th century in Italy and wrote his poems in Italian. In terms of the Petrarchan tradition of love poetry, what we're really getting at is what happens with Petrarch's sonnets. And the story goes something like this that Petrarch, sometime around 1327, when he is roughly 24 years old, uh, attends mass. He basically goes to church and he lays eyes on this woman. He sees her. He instantly falls in love with her. She may or may not have been an actual person. This may or may not have actually happened. But there, but there is a tradition of sort of, sure, he went to church and this is the church he went to and he saw this actual woman. Um, all of the poems address her as Laura, and the poems are also mostly about how he is deeply, deeply, deeply in love with her, and she doesn't know he exists. She does know that he exists and wants nothing to do with him. She is not interested. He loves so much. She doesn't love him back and how miserable he is. And all of this just generates beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry that is uh, extended discussions of investigations of uh recordings of experiences of what it's like to be in love. Um, and there are certain things that, you know, come out of that tradition. I mean, first of all, part of what Petrarch is doing with these, that he, he invents this form that we come to know as the sonnet. Uh, the Latin word is sonus, and, and then sonus means song, and a sonetti uh, is a little song. So the idea is that he's, he's writing little lyric, little lyric poems. Little, little, little poems. Um, and Petrarch has a couple of other innovations as well. As I mentioned, just the idea that there is the illusion, at least, and in some cases, maybe it's actually true, that the speaker is offering a reader a very intimate view of the speaker's actual personal experience, that somehow these are autobiographical. The other kinds of things that we associate with Petrarch, with Petrarch um, launching this tradition, uh, something we call the blazon, and the blazon is a reference to uh, heraldry. Uh, a blazon is the way you describe a piece of heraldry, and you take it apart and you describe it piece by piece. You describe the color of the background, and then what's on it, and what color it is, and whether. So, a blazon in a poem is to take the beloved apart 
into pieces and to describe each of those pieces and how beautiful they are. So if you have ever seen, you know, a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny basically says, you know, her eyes are like beautiful sapphires and her mouth is like a beautiful rose and her lips are like, that is actually a Petrarchan blazon. Also, a lot of Petrarchan poetry has, um, oxymorons and paradoxes. So we get things like uh, things that are bittersweet or, you know, I burn with cold. I have a freezing fire within me uh, as a way of describing the sensations of what it's like to have the strong emotion. And then, you know, most pointedly that this tradition, that what is kind of the spark for all of this poetry is that the speaker who may or may not actually be the same as the poet is expressing uh, longing and desire, but that the object of desire, this this beloved, is just plain not interested. (laughs) And so what's pretty clearly happening in this speech then when Phoebe is basically saying, you know, to to Silvius, essentially you're, you're, you're saying that my eyes, my eyes, are like tyrants, are butchers, are murderers, that when when my eyes look at you, that they wound you, they hurt you, they so essentially what she's doing is pointing out Petrarchan conventions that he's using. This is very, very much in the Petrarchan tradition, that you know, the beloved's eyes are like darts, are like daggers, are like, you know, are are wounding the speaker in all kinds of ways. And basically what Phoebe is doing is pointing out the ways in which that this is hyperbolic and ridiculous and that she, she kind of doesn't want anything to do with it. So essentially, if he's going to keep saying that because she doesn't love him back, that she is cruel and she's like a murderer, essentially what she's saying at the beginning with, you know, I, I fly from the, for I would not, you know, I would not harm thee, I would not injure thee. Is is essentially um, okay if you say that my very existence is causing you such misery. I'm out of here, <laughs> and she's making fun of him, and she's doing so in a way that is incredibly witty and very, very aware of this tradition. And in that wittiness about this tradition, that's also making fun of the tradition. I would say then that she also is, in addition to showing lots of knowledge of Petrarchanism, we might also see this speech as an example of something that is definitely around by the time of this play, late 1590s, which is what gets called the anti-Petrarchan tradition. Shakespeare is writing this play around 1599. This is quite a number of decades later. And over the course of those those many, many, many decades, lots of people write poetry, lots of people write Petrarchan poetry, lots of people write imitations of Petrarchan poetry, and you get lots and lots and lots of variations. We actually get that with one of Shakespeare's better known sonnets, uh, that wonderful sonnet, you know, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. Carl is far more red than her lips red, is actually an anti-Petrarchan blazon poem. It's going through, you know, the eyes, the lips, the breasts, the hair, but instead of describing them all as beautiful, it's describing them all as kind of ugly and unpleasant and earthy and it's an anti-Petrarchan poem. And so 
in many ways, Phoebe is is part of this anti-Petrarchan tradition of calling out that the kind of stuff you get in Petrarch's poetry is is kind of hyperbolic and maybe even a little ridiculous. Um, and Shakespeare himself does that in his sonnets. And so I, I see Phoebe as as very much tied into that interesting and complicated tradition. And the early modern audience would have picked up on that too. They absolutely would have. And it's not just because these poems had been around for a long time or uh, because people didn't have television back then. So what were they going to do other than read and write poetry? Uh, but also that uh, the way that those poems originally circulated, particularly poems by people like Sir Thomas Wyatt and, and Henry Howard, written court circles, this would be something that people would copy. So they would wind up in manuscript miscellanies where people would copy them, or they'd wind up in commonplace books where people would copy poems. And so something people clearly did was pass poems around and uh, copy them and memorize them and copy them and memorize them. These poems would have been available in several different kinds of ways. And by the time we get to 1599 and Shakespeare writing as you like it, many people would have encountered some Petrarchan poetry, some pastoral traditions. It's kind of trickled out into the popular culture. And actually, I mean, one of the other things that Phoebe is probably playing with, it's a poem that is attributed to Christopher Marlowe. The, the poem is, you know, come live with me and be my love and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills and fields, woods or steepy mountain yields. And it's basically this, this shepherd who is supposed to be speaking or singing to his love and promising things like, I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle embroidered all with leaves of myrtle. I'll make you a, a gown made of the finest wool, which from our pretty lambs we pull. By the way, that isn't how you get wool from lambs and not how you make gowns. It's, it's pastoral. Um, so passionate shepherd to his love, uh, What's wonderful is that it generates a bunch of poets then writing responses in the voice of the nymph, <laughs> the, the love, uh, the, the, the female beloved who the shepherd is talking to. The most famous of those responses is by Sir Walter Raleigh, the nymph's reply to the shepherd. And basically the nymph is replying by saying things like, if all the world and love were young and truth in every shepherd's tongue, these pretty pleasures might be moved to live with thee and be my be thy love. But thy gowns, thy shoes, thy beds of roses, thy cap, thy kirtle, and thy posies soon break, soon wither, soon forgotten, in folly ripe, in reason rotten. So, so we actually have a tradition of female speakers speaking back to the male beloved and essentially telling him to kick off. And so it really seems like Phoebe knows her Christopher Marlowe. She knows her poetic traditions and she is in many ways refusing to be the beloved in a Petrarchan poem. She's refusing to be the beloved who just gets written about and described and, and she is speaking back. And that, frankly, is part of why I love Phoebe. I just think she's yeah. She really knows her her own. Uh, she knows her own mind. Absolutely, she she definitely knows her own mind. And so, as much as I say, then though, 
in because she loves her own mind and because she is so aware that uh, of of how these literary traditions in which she's finding herself, um, how they work. I love Phoebe, and I am not entirely sure the play loves Phoebe. Phoebe then does, you know, fall in love at first sight with Ganymede. But before that, she has made very clear that she's just plain not interested in Silvius. He's she's just not that into you. He's she is not he, she is just not wanting him, and he is not taking no for an answer. Um, and yet at the end of this play, that is who she winds up married to. And how we're supposed to feel about that. Um, I do think there are lots of ways one could make production choices. One can make acting choices, performance choices that maybe suggest, well, actually, Phoebe and Silvius are lovely and well-matched and maybe secretly. But, but I think at least in the text, it seems pretty clear that Phoebe is just not interested in Silvius. But she is interested in Ganymede, and that is not who she's going to get, and that is not where she's going to wind up. And so in some ways, uh, she is one of the few characters who at the end of this play is not getting her heart's desire. Um, and I've always thought that kind of structurally part of what Phoebe is doing in this play is that she winds up making both Rosalind and Celia seem less outrageous. Rosalind has clearly fallen head over heels for Orlando at first sight um, and then is running around the woods dressed as a boy um, and is having weird flirty conversations with Orlando while dressed as a boy. I mean, Rosalind is behaving quite outrageously. Uh, but what makes Rosalind in some ways more palatable than Phoebe? Uh, there is someone in love with Rosalind. There is a male character in love with Rosalind and she returns his affections. She does not reject him. And in fact, you know, we see here Phoebe is basically rejecting Silvius's poetic attempts at wooing. Uh, compare that to what Rosalind does with Orlando's, frankly, not very good poems um, that she is flattered by and delighted by and, and intrigued by, despite the fact that it's kind of cr crummy poetry. Um, so this all makes Rosalind just seem much more palatable and, and acceptable. Celia is basically going to run into Oliver and, you know, four and a half lines later, they're, they're ready to get married. Um, this is, you know, quite spontaneous and outrageous, but again, you know, we have a male character who's in love with her. She returns his affection. Fine. It's fine. Yes. Yes. She's being kind of outrageous and unruly and desiring, but it, it, it all works out. Right. But what we get with Phoebe through the fact that she's rejecting Silvius, that she's rejecting someone who might seem to be a perfectly acceptable male partner and thwarting his desire, that's not okay. That's not all right. And she really needs to be reined in. And she does get reined in. Um, so I think there's a gender component to that. There's also surely a class component as well, that even though she is this pastoral shepherdess who knows eerily an awful lot about poetry um, for, for a shepherdess. She, she is, though, you know, not the daughter of a duke. She is not the niece of a duke. She is not, you know, some, some nobleman who's run off into the woods. She is not associated with the court. She's basically a country girl. And who does she think she is? And so I, I think there's a way in which uh, Phoebe uh, has this function within the play 
to make other characters' disobedience seem not quite so problematic. Because we have seen all of these, several other characters in many ways disrupting order. Um, and then they don't get punished for it. And in some ways they actually get rewarded for it. We see Orlando rejecting the authority of his older brother. We see, you know, Celia rejecting the authority of her father. We see, you know, Rosalind, as I said, running off into the woods and dressing up as a boy and all sorts of outrageous things going on. Phoebe is arguably the character in this play whose disobedience doesn't get rewarded. But this speech in particular, I think, also shows why she's wonderful to watch and wonderful to spend time, time with, because she's just very smart and very, very funny and very witty um, and very in control. Yeah, well, it's been great talking about Phoebe with you, Erin, and unpacking all of this uh all of this in this one speech. Uh, it's very exciting. And it's been a great season. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your, your amazing knowledge and uh, expertise. Well, it's been an absolute joy. And I do think that, you know, doing all of this focus on As You Like It overall just makes clear that, you know, As You Like It is a play with a lot of stuff in it. It is full of things. It is full of many, it is manyness and muchness. Um, if you didn't like that scene, hold tight, something else is coming in just a minute and it will be quite different. And so I hope that, you know, everyone does find something in this play that they like, something that they find interesting, something that they can hang on to and, and, uh, spend time with. And so I hope that for people who haven't read this play in a while, that uh, they will go back and spend some time. And also that uh, the very next time that there is a production available in Victoria or wherever people are listening from, that people will go out and get to see a really, really wonderful performance of this really delightful play. Hmm. If that's not a teaser, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Erin. We'll Thank to you, you so too. much, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Soliloquy Project, produced by the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and cozy this winter, and we'll see you again soon.